you pray with me? In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord holy and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And around the throne were the seraphim, each having six wings, and with two he covered his eyes, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to the other, Holy, holy, holy. And the threshold of the temple was shaken, and the whole earth, is filled with his glory. And so, Father, we add our voices to that praise. As meager as that offering is, it's all we've got. We give you our hearts. We sing your praise. We declare your promises. As we open up your word and continue to worship you there, Lord, I pray that you would meet us, that we would hunger and thirst for nothing more than you. I pray this in the power of the Spirit and in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat and good morning. The great tension in modern Christianity is our struggle between knowing we are supposed to live out Christ's commands but ignoring what he taught in the Beatitudes. That is what we started this series with four weeks ago, and it's been a struggle because we don't want to follow naturally what he tells us to do in the Beatitudes. It is a supernatural thing. It is what kingdom people are supposed to look like. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we understand that we are spiritually bankrupt apart from him. And then when we see that he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, we realize that we're supposed to embrace our pain because it's an instrument in the hands of our Redeemer to conform us to Christ's likeness. And then we see, he says, blessed are the gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who he is and because of who we are to him. Because our prayer as a team is not, as a church, is not that just that we would accept these beatitudes, but that we would embrace them that we would see them for what they are. I read this somewhere while I was away on my sabbatical. The great word of Jesus to his disciples is abandon. The great word of Jesus to his disciples is abandon. Not abandon hope, not, nothing like that, but it's, it's to abandon your will, your life, your wants for something way better. It's to Submit to his lordship. So today's message is the next beatitude. It is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we're going to look at it through the eyes of Psalm 73 because what we're doing is taking the beatitudes more or less as an outline for what psalms to pick through our summer psalm series. Today's question is, do you desire the things of God? So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the question we need to ask is, do I desire that? Do I desire the things of God? Because he adds the promise at the end of that to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. But guys, if you don't hunger and thirst for him, you'll never be satisfied, because nothing in this world is going to satisfy us. And yet we spend so much time chasing after so many other things. When a desire 
for holiness is missing, sin has lost its meaning, and grace has lost its message. Guys, this, this challenge today that we're going to see through this beatitude and through the psalm is to live holy. And yet we sit here and we, and, and I know me. And I know I'm not, that's not even possible. But here's the question. If I don't hate sin, if I don't desire to glorify God, if I don't hunger to be with God's people, on what basis am I saying I'm saved? And here's the reality. The church is full of people who are saying they're Christians and have no hunger or thirst for the things of God. Guys, the church is full of people who are professing faith in Jesus Christ and have no personal relationship with him. And that has become okay. And it should break our hearts. And I hope, and I have been praying this week, that that's what would happen in our hearts and in your hearts. Not that we'd point fingers at those people, but that our hearts would break for those people. Are you hungry for sin, or are you hungry for him? That's the question we need to ask today. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, whose righteousness are we talking about? It can't be ours. But here's, here's a couple of little gems for you. That's, that's verse 6 of Matthew 5. A few verses later in our Bibles, in, in verse 20, Jesus says this, But I tell you that if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will perish. Now, this was a works-based righteousness, but, but the point is he's saying we are to be righteous. And if that isn't strong enough, get this one. At the, at, at the end of the chapter, in verse 48, he says, Oh, here's the standard. Be perfect. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> Because I know I can't do that. But that's where grace comes in. That's why he came. That's what the cross is about. Praise the Lord. A couple of just definitions for this beatitude. When, when he uses the words hunger and thirst, he is not talking about, you know, I just have a little craving. He's talking about being like starvation. This is deep starvation and deep thirst. It's the same picture that David in, in, in Isaiah, in, in Psalm 63, when he says that my soul yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water, we can relate to that in Phoenix, Arizona, that's the same verbiage. So he's saying this is, this is an intense desire for righteousness. And yet, last week, I think it was last week, we saw these sweet words of the prophet Isaiah. This is how God sees us. Isaiah 61 says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in the robe of righteousness. That's how he sees us. It's not our righteousness we're hungering for. It's his righteousness in us that we are to strive for, that we're to hunger for. Is that what we are hungering and thirsting for? If the desire for holiness is missing, guys, if you don't desire holiness in your life, and, I'll, and I've confessed this almost weekly up here, there are moments and seasons in my life where that is not true for me. And in that moment, when I do not desire holiness, it is because in that moment, sin has lost its meaning as the affront to God that it is. And grace has lost its message. 
It's all about, this is not about our behavior. This is about what we desire. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is saying, what, what are you hungering for? Not what are you doing? What does your heart want? Not what is your body actually behaving like? But look at the promise of it. And they shall be satisfied. Is that satisfaction for here and now or there and then? Like in the future for heaven? The answer is yes. Just like the other promises attached to the Beatitudes are both like we're, we're already kingdom people, but we're not yet fully consummated into the kingdom because he has not come to restore all things the way they were in the garden before the fall. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God. It does. But the cross reunites us to God. And our desire, because of Christ followers, Christians have had the, Christ, the cross applied to us, should be, for our desire, it should be to be near God. And that's what Psalm 73 is about. Dave read it as our invocation passage. But guys, the, the bottom line for today's message is, there is sin and there is God. Which one do you hunger for? Right? We are chasing after one or the other all the time. And we're going to see that over and over. The question is, which one? Today's outline through the psalm is actually a statement, or sort of a thought, I guess, that God gave me as I was studying through this passage. So I'm just going to put it all up front, and it'll tell you, here's where we're going today in Psalm 73. The problem in our heart is living by what we see and feel rather than what we know to be true. But living by faith, not sight, keeps us looking in the right direction and longing for the right thing, to be with him. And that's all going to come back up if you're trying to write it all down. It's going to come back up as we go along. But let's turn to Psalm 73 in the middle of your Bibles. You, probably, you should be there already from our invocation. But Psalm 73, and let's look at what Asaph has to say about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Asaph was David, King David's, music leader. He was, a, he was what we would call a worship leader. He and David were interacting all the time. It's why their psalms sound so similar. He would also have been a warrior because musicians back then would lead the attack when they would go to war. Good place to be, huh, Sean? Leading right up in front in the attack. Look at verse 1 through 3 of Psalm 73. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's the problem in our heart, guys. We gauge our lives by what we see around us. We start looking around at other things, at other people. We start looking at like, what's fair compared to what other people are getting. We start looking at how other people are blessed. And what we tend to mean by blessed is financially, even though in the 112 times it's used in the New Testament, it's never talked about under financial or worldly blessedness. Right? It's all spiritual. But we look around and we see uh, how other people are. And this is what's happening to Asaph. He's looking around and he's going, it's not fair. We start looking at the people around us for our sense of fairness instead of looking at the God who is above us. Here at Cornerstone, part of why we hold high or hold to the sovereignty of God in all things is because the sovereignty of God in all things means that we have a high view of God and a low view of man. 
That means God is everything and all-powerful, and frankly, we are nothing. That is not what most churches are preaching today. What most churches are preaching today is a high view of man and a low view of God, and look how wonderful we are. Isn't it just obvious that God would love me? And it's because we're looking in the wrong direction for the wrong thing. In your daily reading this past week, if you're doing the readings that are on the back of your bulletin or you're getting the emails or you're looking on our Facebook page, wherever they come up, Isaiah 40 was one of your readings. And I want to read this to you because this is the picture of our God, people. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started. They barely take root when he blows on them and they wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. To whom shall you compare me? Who is my equal? asks the Holy One. Look up at the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of the greatness of his power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. That's our God. The God who spoke the stars into existence and named them, looked down from heaven before eternity passed and said, that one's mine. When he looked at a sinner like you and me, but Asaph was looking at people, and he almost lost his awe of God. One of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp, he has a book just called Awe. It's one of his more recent books. It's just called Awe, A-W-E. And I would encourage you to read it if you have a struggle with understanding who your God is. Because he talks about how we don't have a lust problem, men. We have an awe problem. We don't have an anger problem. We have an awe problem. We don't have a marriage problem. We have an awe problem. We have lost sight of who our God is. And if we can just keep our eyes on him, all that other stuff just looks less important and less glorious. So the problem in our hearts is that we live by what we see and feel. Let's look and see how Asaph did that. Look at verses 4 through 12. For there is no pain in their death. So he's going to describe what he's seeing about all of these people around him. As he's walking to the sanctuary of God, by the way. God is giving him this song. For there is no pain in their death, and their body is fat, and they have no trouble like other men, and they're not plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, and garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. Their Im imaginations are their, of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongues parade through the earth. Therefore his people return to this, to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge with the Most High? They're saying, God doesn't see and what he does see, he doesn't even understand. He's nothing. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. So he's looking around, and he is getting 
more and more distraught. Guys, here's the thing. Here's, the, here's our reality as Christians. And, and it's, it was Asaph's reality as, as a God-fearing Jew. And it hasn't changed in 3,000 years because he lived about 900 B.C. It looks like evil is winning. Does it not? Is the world getting better or worse? It, why, though? The question becomes why. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, For the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the glory of the gospel that is Jesus Christ. Guys, th- when, when that verse... It, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, if you're taking notes, when that verse penetrates our heart and we understand the condition of those people that we see around us and whose influence they're under, it should break our hearts for them. But we should not be surprised that things are getting worse. Why should we not be surprised that things are getting worse? Because Jesus said they were going to get worse. Right? We, 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 one of the things that's so interesting to me about, about Christians is we, we wring our hands about the state of politics and about the state of the world, and, and, and we should be grieved over those things, but we should not be shocked by them. We, we should say, of course that's what's happening. Because in Luke 21, on his way to the cross, Jesus says this, And there will be strange signs in the sun and moon and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. Sounds pretty familiar. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now get this. This is what we should be doing. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. That's why I get my little tagline on my emails. It says, keep looking up. Guys, our job isn't to hide and huddle and cower. Our job is to stand and look up and go, bring it. Because it means he's coming. Praise God. So the problem in our heart is living by what we see rather than by what we know to be true. Now here's the wrestle. All of a sudden, Asaph, he's looking around, he's getting frustrated, just like we all do, just like I do too, and we start pointing fingers at the world out there, those bunch of sinners, and then God just sort of starts flicking him, like, okay, Asaph, don't forget who I am. Don't forget who I am. And he begins the process of turning Asaph's heart back. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Guys, just just stop for a second. Have you ever felt that way? Okay, am I the only one? Like seriously, you're going to leave me hanging up here by myself? Have you ever felt like, man, what am I doing this for? Like seriously, why am I following Jesus? Why am I standing for him? What's the point? When I look around and I see everybody else around me more comfortable, and it's not true, but that's what, I, that's what my flesh convinces itself of. When I lose friends or family members are discouraging or degrading because they don't believe what we believe, or what, all that, you start going, what, have I done all this for nothing? It's so easy to get there. Here's this amazing man of God. Wrote, wrote some of this book sang in the sanctuary of the Lord, led God's people in worship. And he's going, is it all for nothing? 
Because that's what I love about this book. It's real. The men in this book, the women in this book are real. They really wrestle with God. They don't just go, oh, now that I'm at Satan, now that I'm now that I'm with Jesus, everything is wonderful in my life. There is nothing in here that says that. And there is example after example after example that says just the opposite. The difference is our eternity has changed. The difference is our outlook should be completely different. Even when our circumstances haven't changed a lick. Verse 14, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he's saying, I knew enough to not speak it out loud because of who I was and what the people would have said. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And then God gives him this little glimpse until I came into the sanctuary of God. That's his way of going, until my eyes fixed on my Lord. Then I perceived their end. Surely they set themselves in slippery places and cast down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, arouse, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It was hard for me to wrestle through this because here's the thing. Asaph is not very gracious in this psalm. And as Christians who have tasted the grace of God, we should be gracious. And I'll get there in a minute. But I want to I look at, like, look at this, the wrestle of verses 21 and 22. He says, when, I was, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I became senseless. I became like a beast. Guys, that's our, that can be our reality. Here's, if, if we dwell on what we see around us, we spend our time reading our news feeds and watching Fox News and, and, and all of that stuff... We cannot possibly live the joy-filled Christian life he has empowered us to live. You cannot consume negative, 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 negative all the time and then turn around and go, oh, I love you, honey. You are so sweet. To- Man, you look beautiful today. That's true. But if I'm out in my backyard, as I've talked about before, mowing my lawn, arguing with God about all the people who have hurt me and deserve to be smited, with a mighty smitheth, I cannot put my lawnmower away, turn around, walk in and go, hi, honey, you look so beautiful today. It just doesn't work that way. I am like a senseless animal. That's why we got to be so careful about what we take in. Bad stuff in, bad stuff out. Good stuff in, good stuff out. It's just the way it is. But he turns from the horizontal to the vertical. He keeps looking up. It's like, okay, until I came into the sanctuary of God, I got a little glimpse of who God is. I got a glimpse of his holiness and the effect that it should have on me. God, guys, then he starts talking about all this judgment. God is going to judge sin. God, there is, his holiness and righteousness demand that he judge sin, and we would have it no other way. We, we will say things like, or people will say things like, and some of you may be sitting here today are going, man, who is this guy? I mean, I remember as an unbeliever reading these words right here, sitting in an Old Testament class in college because I had to, not because I wanted to, and going, who would believe in this vengeful, angry God? And I read these same words today and I go, what a long-suffering, patient God. 
because I see what he's done in my life and how patient he is towards me and towards us. But guys, it's easy for us to go and it's easy for the world to say, well, I don't want my God to be that way. Well, first of all, we just sang a song that just talks about you, you, are, you are God alone. You just are who you are. But we wouldn't want it any other way. Guys, would we want a judge sitting in a courtroom who had, a, a, who had as, their, um, as, as the defendant or the person, the person being protected some young girl who has been br- brutally raped and the judge looks at the person who did it and goes, you know what, no problem. I've decided to throw the law away today. We would be incensed by that. Would we not be incensed by a God who goes, there is no judgment for sin. But the truth is, he has placed that judgment on his son, Jesus Christ. The same God who judges the sin provided the way out. He, pre- he paid the penalty. And he provides us the way. Do we have a heart of grace that is broken by the people that we see that don't know that the cross paid the price? That have not come to believe that he is the only way, truth, and life. When we see the sins of the world as bigger than our own, we point at people. When we see ourselves as grace-built, blood-bought sinners turned into saints by the Savior, we point at him. Where are you pointing? Where is our church pointing? When we look out at those people in the world who are sinning so badly, we point at them. That's not what Jesus did. You don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 9, there's this great scene. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has already turned towards Jerusalem for the last time, and he's walking towards what he knows is going to be his death. And they go into a Samaritan town, and and this is Luke 9, 50 through 54, basically. And they go into the Samaritan town, and the people reject him. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they were called the sons of thunder, the apostles, James and John, they're they're like, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call some fire down on these guys? Because look what they just did. Do you want me to smite them with a mighty smiteth? And Jesus says, he's like, stop it. You have no idea from, whom, from whose spirit you are. He's saying right now in this moment, when you're trying to act like that, you are of the spirit of Satan. Someday you're going to be filled with my spirit and you are going to be people of grace. But it's so easy for us to look around. Guys, we have to remember... That God, even though he will punish sin, he loves sinners. He loves us enough to send his son to die for us. So here's a question I have for you. When when I say something like, we need to pray for revival, what's the first entity you think of? Like, what's the first place you think of starting? We need to pray for revival. Do you think of our nation or of yourself? Because we tend to think, oh, we need to pray for revival. As a nation, we need to pray for revival. And we do. But that revival starts here and there and there and there. It doesn't start in our nation. Those people don't need Christ. We need the gospel. And when we get that, those people will get Christ. 
when we just start loving people because we understand that God said in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. When we see that that's what his heart is towards the sinner, he's saying, yes, I have to punish sin, but I have provided the source, the way out. Just believe. Guys, that's not just a New Testament thing. In the world, a few hundred years after Asaph and Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 38, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their way and live. God does not enjoy punishing sinners. It breaks his heart. It should break ours too. So the problem in our heart is living by what we see rather than by what we know to be true. Because we live in a world that is broken, guys. But here's the thing. But living by faith, not sight, keeps us looking in the right direction. Living by faith, not sight, keeps us looking in the right direction. Now let's take a look at verses 23 through 27. So now Asaph, God is going to kind of grab a hold of him, rattle his cage a little bit and go, Now Asaph, get it together, man. And so Asaph writes this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand, and with your counsel you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? He's saying, is there anything in heaven I want more than you? Is there anybody in heaven I want to see more than Jesus? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What does that sound like? Sounds like those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who want nothing more than to pursue God will be satisfied. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may stumble. I may get angry. I will sin but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. It is such a struggle for us to stay looking in the right direction. Guys, get another story. Again, don't turn there. No, we looked at it a while ago and when we were going through the Gospel of John. So, so Jesus has died, been resurrected, has not yet ascended. He's come back. He's, he is, Peter has denied him three times before the crucifixion. He has been restored by Jesus three times by saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then they're walking away. Their last few moments with Christ before he ascends to heaven. They, they're walking away and he looks at Peter and goes all the way back to the first call on Peter's life at the three years earlier. And he looks at Peter and he says, follow me. Just follow me. Okay, so all of that has happened in Peter's life. He's walked with Jesus for three years. He has seen the resurrected Christ. He is talking to the resurrected Christ as we speak. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, follow me. What does Peter do? It says Peter turned around. He's, he's walking with Jesus. Wait, why would you look anywhere else? I mean, guys, I, I know we talk about how we are better off 
because the whole because his spirit lives in us he's not just beside us and that is completely true and yet don't we all know let's just be real that if Jesus walked in this room right now we would all run over and want to sit like be next to him and I would be like forget you people I, I, don't, I don't care where, who, what. I don't care about anything. I want, to, I want to just sit here. Let's just you and me, brother. Come on, Lord. And yet, what is Peter doing? He's walking along, and, and Jesus is talking, saying, Peter, follow me. Remember three years ago? Follow me. Remember that? And he's like, what is he doing? That is how hard it is for us to keep our eyes focused on him. He's right next to him and he can't keep him. And Peter cannot keep his eyes focused on Jesus. And he says, he says well, what about John? And, and, and Jesus, because he's Jesus, he didn't do this. I would go, like, seriously, man, I, I spent three years with you. Like, are you ever going to get this right? And he says, you follow me. Your only job, Peter. This is it. This is all you have to do for the rest of your life until you're crucified because of me. Follow me. Just follow me. Man, that is so hard. It is so hard in a world that is screaming to us so many other things. It's part of why so much of what we try to do here at Cornerstone, whether it be gathering for worship on Sundays or having prayer times together or having life groups that meet every week or, or having the daily devotionals that go out or all those things, it's, it's our effort to try to block some of that stuff that's waiting. It's just waiting for us out there, guys. The world is just waiting for us out there. And so we try to provide as many different opportunities as we can here. And it's why gathering every week and in those different settings is so important. But guys, it's also why it is so important that you take that, per that walk from a corporate walk of, yeah, I came to church, so I'm good, to a personal walk with him on a daily basis. That's what Larry Wright used to say, Bible teacher years ago, went home to be with the Lord. He said, being in a garage does not make you a car. Sitting in this church today does not make you a Christian. That's where I started. The church is full of people who are professing Jesus as Lord and have no personal relationship with him at all. And the leaders of the church are okay with that. Not your leaders. We're not okay with that. I would rather pastor a church of a hundred people who are following him than a church of 5,000 who are showing up to watch a movie. John Calvin, the reformer, said this, every waking moment of your life, you're doing one of three things. Every waking moment of your life. John Calvin lived like the reformers, you know, during the Reformation a long time ago. He said this, before cell phones, you're doing one of three things. You are either creating, you are cultivating, or you are consuming. And there is no other. Every moment of our lives, all of us are doing one of those three things. We are either creating something, we are cultivating something we already know to be true, or we are consuming the question for us as believers is, how do we focus on hungering and thirsting after things that we are creating 
and things that we are cultivating so that we consume what leads us to righteousness. So I'm going to share, I'm just going to take five minutes, and I'm going to share what my rhythm of life is. And I really prayed about this. You can ask Jeff. I even talked to Jeff and Tony about it on Thursday. I agonized over whether I wanted to do this or not. Just where my personal spiritual, like what I do every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year. And I agonized about that because one of the first things God hit me with, I shared this with you when I first got back from my sabbatical, is, Doug, you are way more concerned about exalting who I am in you than just exalting me. Don't exalt who I am in you, exalt me and watch what I do. So guys, I, I don't share this to say do these things. In fact, I'm not, I'm not going to put the list up. If you want them emailed to you, send me an email and I'll be happy to email them to you. But part of why I didn't put them in writing or anything is because this is not some secret list. Through the month of August, we're going to have other people, men and women, come up and share what they do. Because this is not like, oh, well, this is what we got to all be like Doug. I'm not saying that. I just, this is who I... All I got to go by is this. This is what I do. This is what's worked for me. I'm going to go through them quickly. Do not try to write them all down. If something jumps out at you, write it down. Write down, okay, this is something that I might be able to do to keep looking up. Ultimately, that's what this is about. How do we keep looking in the right direction? So daily, here's the first thing. Set an alarm. Every day I start by setting my alarm working backwards from when I need to leave the house. I need two hours. It's not all to be with the Lord. I wish that were true, but I need two hours. Set an alarm. It doesn't start when you get up in the morning. It starts the night before. Second thing is, before I get out of bed, and guys, I don't do all of these every day. I wish I did, but I don't do all these every day. Before I get out of bed, pray, Lord. Today, my first prayer was, Lord, I need your protective grace today. And then I got out of bed. I have a short devotional on my phone that I read just to wake my brain up before I get into the Word. So I'll read through a short devotional. I have a reading plan. We provide that for you. It's on the back of your bulletin. It's the daily readings that go along with today's message. So what you'd read tomorrow would connect back to what you just heard today. It's called keeping the conversation going. You don't want to do that. That's okay. I would encourage us all to be on the same conversation. But if you have some other reading plan, have a plan. Read and respond to God's Word. Pray. Find different ways of praying. Switch it up a little bit. Don't just pray through lists of things. Just talk to God. When I'm, if I have a, I'll drive somewhere, like I'm driving downtown somewhere for a meeting or something, I will put on a podcast. If I'm hiking the mountain or something, I will put on a podcast. If it's not a podcast of a good Bible teacher or something that has to do with, with the church, then I will put on worship and praise music so loud that it's going to damage my ears. And I don't care. Because it will drown my own voice out of my head. Now, throughout the day, guys, give yourself some time between, like throughout the day, give yourself some time to refocus. I will take my journal, and I will take a picture of what, what I journaled on that day, and I will put it as, my, as my, like, my background on my phone. That way, when, in the middle of the day, when I'm like, man, I'm just getting weary. What did, what did God say to me this morning? I forgot right after I walked out the door. I can just flip right there on my phone, and there it is. But, but stop. If, you, if you're a person that has to go from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting, stop and pray. Just give yourself a minute to go, Lord, I need you. If you're a stay-at-home mom, and we have a lot of those here, guys, when your husband, have this conversation with your husband. When your husband gets home, you just need to hand them your kids and go, I need five minutes to get my soul back. I'll be back. And then go pray. 
and then come back and spend time with your family. Throughout the day, when you're, when you're sitting down at the dinner table, we don't have dinner together every night, but we really try to protect that time as best we can. And we'll talk. We'll ask questions. What was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? What did God say to you in the Word today? Stuff that's not yes or no. Stuff that can't get answered back with one word. And then, and this is something i got to get better at before I walk in the house, after a long day and I'm just wiped out, Pray. Pray, Lord. Round two. Here we go. My family's what matters. Let's go. So that's daily. Weekly. They go faster now. My weekly rhythm. We meet together on Sundays. We meet together in a, in a life group. We're part, of, we're part of a core group. I don't lead it. RJ and, and Mark lead ours. But we, we go midweek to be filled. Right? This is part of our, our weekly cadence. We try as a family to practice hospitality in our house at least one day, one night a week. Have people over. It's just a way to stay connected. It's a way to stay focused on him. We have breakfast together as a family usually about once a week. I'll make the girl something completely unhealthy, much to my wife's chagrin. I try, this is my hardest one, I try to have a Sabbath day of rest where I don't work, I don't open up my laptop, I don't think about you people, I don't, I just rest and relax and do stuff around the house, and that is the hardest thing for me. Here's why. Don't go, oh, because you're so busy, pastor. No. You guys are as busy or busier than I am. It's because I'm prideful. It's because sitting and doing nothing seems lazy to me because, man, God needs my help. Guys, rest, sleep, is our way of saying, God's got this. Do not exchange the playing and resting part of your life from the feasting and fasting part. Like, like don't get so caught up in the, the, like, I have to spend so much time fasting for the Lord that I can't just enjoy the feasts of God. I can't just enjoy his richness. Don't get so caught up in suffering for the Lord that you don't take time to rest. Monthly, we try to do a family adventure, we call them. Sometimes those family adventures are pretty lame. It can be a family adventure to go to a movie because we don't go to a lot of movies. It can be a family adventure to go on a hike somewhere. They are not the Teuton's version of a family adventure. I will tell you right now, I love those things. They do all this crazy repelling. It's awesome. If you ever get a chance to go, you should go. It's just not our deal. We'll go with them once in a while. I'll be scared for a month. I won't ever go back. We'll do a hike. We'll do a walk. We'll go down to see my parents in Tucson. We'll, whatever it is, but we'll try to get, just to have some, some extended time away from home because when you're at the house, even as a family, what happens? Life. So get away. Even if it's just, just for a day trip. Not overnight. We don't go anywhere overnight. We just go for a day. Dates with my wife. Dates with my daughters. Sorry. Meeting with, the other, with other leaders of other churches. I do that once a month. We meet as a group of pastors from the Gospel Coalition just to encourage one another. We meet together as leaders here, elders, and then the whole lead team. We gather together. Why? Because being together feeds my soul. Last couple, quarterly. I, take, I try, I've, I've gotten better at this, I try to take a 24-hour personal retreat the 24 hours is no cell phone, no radio, no television, no music of any kind, no silence. That'll melt your brain. 
It will. If, if, if that doesn't scare you a little bit, it should. Because we are so good at filling our lives up with noise because we're afraid we might hear from God. It's just time to listen and let go. I try to do that once a quarter. And then yearly, family vacations. Part of what I did a really poor job of in 2017 was we went on one vacation for five days in 2017. And that's why we needed this, one of the reasons we needed the sabbatical this year in 2018. Because you've got to plan time to just, even if you can't afford to go anywhere, just shut it down. Just shut it down. Guys, don't try to do every, don't, like, don't walk out of here and go, all right, hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what I got to do to hunger and thirst. And don't try to go home and go, okay, I'm going to do all of this now. It'll be like when you get that really, I'm going to start going to the gym. So you go to the gym and you work out like a fiend. And then for like a month, you can't move, right? Because you're so, so don't do that. Just pick something. Pick one thing. Pick something you heard today. Pick something you're healing, you'll hear from somebody else next Sunday. And go, that's something I can do. And watch and see if it doesn't change your heart to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Ask him to give you a heart to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we're going to wrap it up with this. The problem in our hearts is that we live by what we see and feel rather than by what we know to be true. But living by faith, not sight, keeps us looking in the right direction and longing for the right thing to be with him. Asaph finishes it this way. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. As the lights come down and the music team comes up for our time of responding to his will in your life, I just want to ask you, is that your heart? Is that, is what Asaph just wrote there, is that your heart? But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Your translation might translate it a little more clearly. It might say, but as for me, being near God is what is good. Is it good for you to be near to the Father? Guys, I want to be real transparent. That's hard for me sometimes. I didn't have a great father He's turned into a very kind, gentle man, but he wasn't when I was young. And so I see God as demanding, as punishing, as impatient. So when I hear Asaph say, it is good for me to be near God, I don't know that my heart naturally felt that. I think there's times where it still doesn't. But because he has provided the way for us to come to him, because he took my heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh, I see him as the good father he is. Do you? Did you know that he is the one who has provided the way to be near him? There is sin and there is God. And Jesus Christ died to reconcile us to him. That's why we can say, 
Claim this promise. Right now, as we get ready to go into communion and, and you're going to sit, if you need prayer, guys, I want you to, there'll be people in the back to pray with you while the song is going on. You can get up and go pray. If you want to pray for somebody or with somebody, get up and walk over and pray with them. Guys, I'd ask you to just, if you just want to sit and soak him in, I'd ask you to, to, to consider this promise. Hebrews 4. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you, Lord, for the invitation. Come, follow me. And you said that and you meant that because you provided the way for that. The cross is proof of your love for us. So may we not doubt it. And regardless of where we are spiritually in this moment, how we might hear this at different, in different ways because your spirit is impressing it upon our hearts, I pray that we as a people would come boldly before the throne of grace and there find mercy and help in our time of need, that we can say, without a doubt, it is good to be near God. In Jesus' name, amen.